I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have taken a moment to tell a friend about the podcast. That is, uh, that's how people hear about it for the most part, and uh, I, I do appreciate it. My guest today is Amit Majmadar, who is a poet, novelist, translator, uh, medical doctor. He's, he's written, uh, I don't even know how many books. I, I, I couldn't even find what looked like a reliable list of all of them, but uh, his most recent poetry collection is called What He Did in Solitary. He's won any number of awards and, and so on. But this week he joined me to talk about an essay he wrote in the Los Angeles Review of Books. The essay is called The Great Game, and it is about the ways in which poetry is like a game or a sport. I disagreed with a fair amount of the essay, but I thought it was really delightfully written, and he was an incredibly good sport to come on and and just talk through it with me. We also got into a few other things, including uh, what varieties of poetry being written today are legitimate or not, <laughs> uh, and uh, why free verse has become so uh, dominant in the poetry world. It's a fun conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get to that right now. You wrote this uh, sort of fascinating piece recently in the LA Review of Books, which just on a a side note, because I I talked to Austin Allen recently about an essay he had there Mm -hmm. on uh, the stigma of of writing in meter recently. Right, I read that. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, is... um, is the LA Review of Books suddenly like a because is it because of I guess Boris Australia because like a suddenly formal friendly because it feels like they were very well, he, kind of for a while. He's an excellent formal poet. I actually am reading his uh, collection right now. Um, yeah, I just got a bootleg of it. So I'm, yeah, yeah, I've heard it's good. And uh, yeah, no, he's he's extremely uh, deft and 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 skilled uh, with formal techniques in his own verse and also in his translations. So, so yeah, no, he's, he's there. We, we have a, a friend as, you know, people who okay. formal poetry. Generally, we don't, we don't have very many people who are, um, I think of the LA of books as being like cool. And so I'm not used to formal venues being cool at all. No, there it's, it's not cool. It's definitely not, <laughs> cool. but you know, it, it, all these things depend on people in, you know, positions where, um, you know, they can, they can signal boost that kind of thing. So I'm pretty sure that if I'd sent the great game, which is the essay that you're referring to, you know, if you send it to somewhere else that never, you know, has, you know, has people in editorial positions who never, who don't consider formal elements of poetry to be valid techniques within contemporary art or contemporary poetry, that that essay would would have just been rejected. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe either uh, the earlier review of books will will start to uh, to ease uh, formal poetry in the mainstream, or uh, formal poetry will just just poison the well and it'll become uh, toxically uncool soon enough. <laughs> I, I doubt that. I doubt that. I think that uh, they they keep it eclectic enough, and probably it'll be like it is or has been where it's just sort of like a niche kind of, you know, element to it, but not necessarily. Hopefully we will not uh, 
uh, allow our uncoolness to taint um, <laughs> Mr. Drelick's endeavors. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I certainly, certainly. Uh, uh, so yeah, so you, I'm, I, I was curious a little bit about the genesis of this piece because, so you said you sent it out. So you, this was something you wrote on spec on your own. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So actually, what happened was this is and funny you should mention Austin because um, basically I was years ago. This is years ago. I yeah. was um, the visiting. I very rarely get invited to universities or anything like that, but um, the University of Cincinnati had someone who knew my work, and they invited me to be this like Elliston visiting professor, which was a very new experience for me. Yeah, because I never teach students and I never am in a university setting for this for poetry and so the initial form of this was actually a speech that I gave um, which I think is in their archives um, the very early version of it okay and then and so that was actually the text of a speech uh, that I gave and okay pretty sure Austin was in the audience then so I mean I just sat on it for a long time and then just so that so that's so okay that that makes some sense because yet yeah, it has a, a little bit of a I mean it's obviously playful I and mean, you even say in it that you kind of you've been you've been sort of improvising by way of meaning and association yeah, that's how I write everything to be honest with you yeah no that it's <laughs> yeah it seems systematic like it's just like I just extemporize it and then see how it comes out so I I am curious about this because you you did something uh kind of incredible so i'll say like you you have griped and in, in some places about about being sort of shut out of the academic world and I, and like and that I, I i imagine that's that's quite true i will say that like among the formal poets i know everybody knows who you are and i do remember okay, like that's that's reassuring <laughs> yeah oh no certainly like like yeah that's i mean i also think like that's formal poets more broadly feel a little bit shut out of the academic world but uh, yeah, like I remember sort of exchanging uh, a raised eyebrow with a friend at your your interview with Caitlin Doyle in Literary Matters a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know if it's the entire, I think there's at least one question that seems to be, it seems to be a little more, pro- but for the most part, you answered her questions in rhyming verse. I did, yes. You didn't break the lines, you left it all in paragraph form. Right. Right. But it's pretty clear when you start reading it that it's all in rhyming verse. Yeah, if you read it out loud, it's in heroic couplets. And then, except there's one answer where I, which I do it in prose because that relates to the question. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. About narrative. No, that's the one. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that. Yeah. So, then you yeah, go back to the rhyming couplets. Yeah. 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 And, and then I revert to rhyming couplets. Yeah. So you make a claim. And I, I feel like with your poems and your prose, there is such a, a kind of playful improvisatory quality that you i never know how seriously to take any assertion you make um yeah, good good you shouldn't take my assertions right. seriously um yeah <laughs> you say so i'll read one of your little rhyming uh i don't know if this yeah i think this this actually uh contains the rhymes cleanly um you say uh my generative process harem scarum i neither break my poems nor repair them uh most common most come to me at one go what you read is what i wrote i let the language lead sometimes i fix a couplet here or there but even touch-ups honestly are rare i'd rather chip at an unchiseled marble a cerulean warbler never revises its warble so really really this feels like like one of those frost claims where he's oh i just i'm just making it up as i go why why revise i i am well i i discard a lot so, okay. So, all right. All right. So that's that's the difference there. Um, I don't. I, I don't know what Frost did or not. But for me, 
I have revised poems. I'm not saying I've never ever revised. Sure. I have yeah, revised yeah. Occasionally, but it's it's that's rare for me to do that. Usually, what I'll do, and you know what, Byron in one of his letters, Lord Byron has this. Yeah, yeah line where he's like i'm like a tiger i pounce i either get my prey and if i don't i just go skulking off and i go find some other prey and okay. so what i'm likelier to do is you know have some idea or have something i want to riff on or something that i want to do and i'll just do it and then it'll either be like oh that didn't come off or it'll be like oh that kind of came off i should send that out somewhere you know and yeah, yeah. and then i'm not as likely to circle back to the thing that didn't work i just kind of abandon it and move on and see if something else works because a lot okay. of times it's kind of like i'm trying to i'm trying to see if something like strikes something like magic you know did you, you you know you, you did you did you did you light the fire with the flint or not and you just have to keep trying you know and so so that's i i used to i used to think of it almost like uh lottery tickets you know like right, right there's right. no there's no point in re-scratching off a lottery ticket if you didn't win with that the first time so i just try and get a lot try and make my own luck one of the ways i think about it is in terms of like uh takes in a movie mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're like part like part of the difference between a stage actor and a film actor is that a film actor only has to get it right once Mm -hmm. and can try a hundred times and if he has the right. right editor and the right director they just find that one time it just happened all at once and it right. was just right. right and it i do feel that way reading like certainly reading like shakespeare's sonnets i feel like he i mean he he was shakespeare but it, it does feel like in many cases he sort of banged them out and some of them are a little wobbly and some of them just land just right. so uh and i yeah I, I wonder if that was as much revision as it was just uh, what another friend of mine used to call shots on goal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I think that even poets who are really meticulous revisers, it's not like everything they do lands, you know, no. and, and, and it's, it's kind of as though um, I feel like poets whom we think of as having um, very high hit rates. Right. And very small uh, miss rates or and very they usually have very small corpuses like, you know, their yeah. collected works are like that right. are, are very, very, you know, slender books. And <clears throat> I think it's because they restrain how much of their work gets out, you yeah. know, and so they create a sort of illusion like, oh, I never I don't write a lot. But when I do, I never miss when you don't know yeah, what yeah. they have in their discard pile, you know, you don't know. And so. Yeah, and so with Shakespeare's sonnet, I agree with you. I mean, they're they're hit or miss, um, and and that I think is just the nature of of every poet's output. And I don't I don't look at my own poetry and be like, oh, you know, that one wasn't as good as this one other one. It's it's not it's not a healthy way of looking at it. And and so I mean, I just uh, again, I just I just let her rip, and then out of that, you know, James Dickey was the same way. James Dickey said that he. He 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 compared himself to someone panning for gold, and yeah. you know he says that when you know I just let I just had there's a lot of you know grit and 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 dirt that gets kind of out there, but then finally when I get the gold when I get gold it's gold you know it's the real thing, and so he he compared it to panning for gold. Um, you can compare it to lottery tickets, but yeah. it's all it's all about trying to stay in the creative zone for me at least. It's about trying to stay in the creative zone and trying to stay. Um, thinking in literary terms and poetic terms and, um, you know, keep my, keep, you know, stay, stay, you know, keep that muscle memory, keep the linguistic muscle memory. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of you know Jarrell talked about being struck by lightning. Yeah, no, that 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 does make sense. I'm I am a little bit curious because you're you're the the overall theme of this essay, the great game, or it really feels like sort of a series of themed like related short mm -hmm. essays. Mm -hmm. uh, is a, it basically it's 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 riffing on a comparison between poetry and play or or games, right, right. and you you may i mean i think like i'm i'm always interested in in arguments about in arguments that, that compare poetry to something that might be uh unexpected initially i tend to think that poetry is l less like games than than it is it is it is more unlike than like but i think i'm still interested in in the way in which you say it's like i was curious though you you say uh you talk about competition and then you you make some claims about rules and so you say mm -hmm. there are cliques or schools in contemporary poetry that play a game whose rules are foreign to me and I take no enjoyment in watching them play it. Mm -hmm. I I certainly sympathize with you there, but I don't know if I like even in the schools of poetry where I understand kind of what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of those that I still don't enjoy. Like I, I, I was sort of groomed in a post-language poetry style uh, school, mm -hmm. and did that for a while. And I, I do kind of get it. I do kind of get what they're after. I just find it very unsatisfying. <laughs> very sure. and, boring. And that holds true of, of games as well. I would argue. You know what I'm saying? Like. There are, there are games whose rules you, under, you can understand. Oh, yeah. but you don't like to, I, I just don't, I'm not into that sport. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, oh, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know how soccer's played, but I don't play soccer because I'm just not into soccer. You know? Right, right. So yeah. then, yeah, so the, I guess the elaboration on that though, you say to enjoy the game being played in front of you, you have to recognize the rules by which the poet is playing. Once you can tell what the rules are, you can tell whether that poet is playing the game well or not and you you also talk about like aliens watching a game of baseball if you don't understand right. the rules it's the way like i think like most americans feel watching like cricket just like what the sure. fuck yeah. is going on right uh, i get that they're doing something and some people are good right. at it i just can't right. tell what's what so right. th that that certainly makes sense but i don't know i think like there are when i read poems by uh poets who are, sort of have a, like a very high level of technical mastery Mm -hmm. I often marvel at little inventions and little achievements within the work, but I think that there is a, and it's not that those are unrelated to the, the, the more immediate emotional effect. It's just that the, the immediate emotional effect is what I most envy. And it's what I most strive for. Like, mm -hmm. I don't feel, I don't feel as envious of of a, a particularly ingenious Greg Williamson or John Hollander poem, I, I feel envious of the the way in which they're able to make an arrow strike home. And, mm -hmm. and I think I think like what's what's also true is that you don't necessarily need to have a much understanding of the rules of a poem in order to have it affect you. Mm -hmm. right? Like so, I think I think there's like there is a kind of a an inside baseball mutual a admiration and criticism among people who do it. But mm -hmm. I mean, part of what I'm, one of my like pet peeves is poetry that has no interest in a general reader. Mm -hmm. and I think of your poems as, as, as like, 
there are some where you're like you're really sort of showing off some technical you know <laughs> like virtuosity but in but in most of them you you are you're writing to i think you know like a, a somebody who's like literate but not necessarily into poetry could still enjoy what you're yeah, yeah that I mean, seems I, like a really dis, like a different thing does that make sense um, yeah i mean i think that i think that uh we are often sort of led into making distinctions or oppositions where none may exist and i think that you know sometimes for example with form we're like there's 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 form and there's content and the form is a is a receptacle for the content and these things are distinct uh the way something is a container or something like that right a container of some true essence and it is the essence that you want to capture and then you're putting it into a form right that's that strikes me as a false dichotomy right right yeah um i also happen to think that the the head heart dichotomy is false um that the romantic era kind of signal boosted and it's never really been shaken um you know the, the the head heart distinction oh this is very you know emotional so and this is too intellectual and this and that i feel like people feel thoughts all the time and it's one of the bases of fanaticism for example where people are seized with an ideology a religious idea and they get worked up over it and they're willing to go to war over it and this and that right and so so I think where, you know, am I doing techno technically virtuosic stuff? Am I trying to appeal to the general reader? I feel like some of, you know, I feel like a lot of people who aren't quote into poetry are super responsive to technological virtuosity language, which is in well, yeah. part, you know, which is in part why rap is so, so popular. Right. One of the reasons why rap is so popular. Um, and and I know in my own personal experience, I'm often surprised by what people vibe to and what people don't. And so I've gotten like, there's this one throwaway poem in this collection I published in 2016 called His Love of Semicolons. And it's got this whole, you probably, you know, you probably don't remember it, but you know what? A ton of, I've gotten so many letters about that poem and I, people share it and I still hear about it. Sometimes yeah, people, yeah. oh, my favorite poem was, was that one about semicolons. And I'm yeah. like, that was literally just me playing around with with it was it was like it's very you know it's got this bouncy meter to it yeah. and this and that and it's about semicolons literally about semicolons and and um and so that would strike me as a very sort of you know technique oriented literary bookish type of poem and yet that's the one that i hear the most i hear second most about out of that whole collection but that's not because people understand the rules of the game you're playing necessarily right i think i think their ears do i think their ears absolutely do oh sure but i mean this is so this is like but this is i guess the, the this is where i think like there's a there's a greater um dissimilarity between poetry and games than than similarity and that i think you 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 don't necessarily this is in a case where you don't necessarily need to understand the rules of the game in order to enjoy it just as understanding the rules of the game doesn't necessarily lead to no i, I think that i think that in in the poetry that i'm talking about of the sort that i'm talking about in that essay so obviously yeah. at this point in history there are just widely divergent forms right. of poetry out there and it's almost implicit in that 
in that particular essay that I'm speaking to a certain type of poetry where, yeah. you know, so, so within that type of poetry, the, one of the, one of the, you know, the ear can understand the rules of a game, which is, you know, meter rhyme, the ear can understand it without even the intellect being involved. So people who have never thought about poetry in abstract terms, who may not know what iambic pentameter even is, it may sound like a scary Greek jargon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their ears understand it. And, and, and that, you know, that's a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I've relied on that whenever I, you know, whenever I find, I was poet laureate of the, of the state of Ohio for a few years back there. And whenever I was going in front of an audience full of people who did not have backgrounds in poetry, which is in that position, you end up doing that a lot. Yeah. You know, I'm consistently going towards poems that had rhyme in it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. because they get that. They get it. They understand what I'm doing. They understand yeah. the rules of that game. And they yeah, do it yeah. without necessarily, they do it instinctively. They do it the way children understand the rules of a game where a lot of times when you're teaching a kid, you know, to uh, say, well, I mean, baseball is kind of a little bit different than that, but like, you know, I feel like, you know, you don't have to spend a really long time teaching a kid, a young kid, how to play certain, you know, games because they just kind of watch and they, they get yeah. into it and then they just know it. And with, with, the poetry that you know with rhyme and meter and things like that i think it's even you even you don't even have to give anyone a primer you don't even right. have to be like this is how you play five card draw yeah well you don't you, you don't need to teach a kid how to enjoy a nursery rhyme right you don't you don't it, it is it and that's because their ears understand it the same way right. the ears understand music you know same so way this, this is then i think a meaningful distinction that you're it may be that you're i'll say like i noticed there's certain sections in your essay where you you withdraw into a, a like either a passive voice or a third person in a way that I think I suspect you're being diplomatic. You say mm -hmm. like some readers find this to be, uh, <laughs> and and I I suspect you're being diplomatic also when you when you sort of make this character when you, when you say that like there are different kinds of poetry and in order to enjoy a certain kind of poetry you need to know the rules and I and I kind of want to say like well that's that actually may be as good a definition as any of the difference between what has in the past been sort of maligned as accessible poetry or you know, like, I think the, the, the poetry I'm most, I tend to be most interested in as a reader and a writer is the poetry that helps the reader understand the rules without the reader needing much of a primer. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, because I, that's I, not true of some school, right? There, there's some not, schools of poetry where you really need to be prepared ahead of time. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And and I think that poetry that relies on elements intrinsic to the language, stresses, sounds, you know, alliteration, things like that, uh, those natural, those sort of have a, an advantage over some of the more arcane ones, whether it's it's like I'm not going to use the letter E, uh, you know, for, you know, on this page, I'm not going to use the letter A on yeah, the next yeah. page, you know, right. where you have to have a, a kind of like a, like a, like a paragraph before you enter the work as to, you know, what are the rules involved here? What are, right. you know, what is, what is the poet, you know, what constraints does the poet set himself or herself um, when, when producing this work? So, so, I mean, you know, there's, there, 
as poetry became more typographically based, I mean, and literature in general became more typographically based, there, there's, you know, there's, you know, I think what's it called, Ulipo or something like that, where they right, do yeah. kind of games with, they, they play those games with vowels, and I think they're setting themselves, yeah. they're setting themselves arbitrary constraints, um, which is to a, a which is similar to what a, a formal poet does. It's not that different, and you're using those constraints in order to generate and sort of drive your creativity by basically, you know, giving yourself you know, forcing your invention to go around certain obstacles in order to, um, you know, produce work, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But that, I mean, I think, I think what you're identifying again is, is a meaningful distinction. I think of like, uh, uh, my brother's a visual artist. I think of like artist statements and there's a certain stripe of contemporary visual art that you can't appreciate unless you read the artist statement because you need to know right, the, yeah. the key. Like, oh, this is only impressive now that I know right. that it was constructed. You did it only using his left hand or you did it only. You know, right. Right, right, and right. I think that yeah. there are there are formal constraints. And I tend to think lipograms are, are, are all, I mean, like lipograms are impressive in some ways uh, where you, you deliberately drop a letter or you drop some element and, and you don't allow yourself to use it. But uh, but they tend to require an introduction in order for you to be impressed by them. And I, I think I'm most, I'm most interested in the constraints that don't like, I, I know this is a thing I noticed years ago at poetry readings that poets, uh, needed to introduce any, any poem that involved a demanding formal constraint, they would, mm -hmm. uh, introduce it by telling you what kind of form it was. <laughs> You're going to be like, well, if it's worth doing and, and the constraint was panned out, then don't, right. why bother to tell people what it was? Why not just read in the poem? Right, right. Like, yeah, you know, form and meter, you know, meter and rhyme are hard to do, but you don't need to tell people you did them ahead of time. They can just appreciate what they're listening to. Right, right. And uh, I think I mentioned that where I talk about recognizing the rules of the game, you also recognize it in the way that a country recognizes another country, where you right. say that this is legitimate. This is a yeah. legitimate restraint that you've placed on yourself that has some value or meaning or, or is, is, you know, is worthwhile. Yeah. And I know that in my own personal experience, you know, if someone is like, you know, I, I didn't use the, the, the letter E in this poem, I don't necessarily think that that's all that fruitful because, you know, a, a restraint and it's, you know, I have trouble recognizing le le the legitimacy of that restraint because I don't yeah. I feel like it's so typographically based, so spelling based that I don't necessarily quote recognize it the way that you would recognize a legitimately governed country. Um, and that's why I tend to, um, you know, I, I tend to prefer things like rhyme meter. Um, having said that, I don't necessarily use them exclusively. I write you know, I write plenty of free verse, prose poems, all sorts yeah. of things. Um, and, you know, that's at, at this point in history, I think that there's just, you know, there, there's just so many ways of writing. And I like to try a lot of them out. There are yeah, some yeah. I won't do. I don't foresee myself in all the various peregrinations that I have among forms and this and that. I don't foresee myself getting to the point where I'm like, and I'm not touching the letter E. For sure, this yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but I, I don't really rule out most other stuff. I like to try different things all the time. Right, well, and, and as you said, there's a there's a difference between what you try as a 
as an exercise or experiment that then, and, and there's a difference between that and then what you choose to publish. Mm-hmm. You might try any number of things to see what it yields, but I think that yeah. like, that's the, 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 the snotty Robert Van Warren line is, you know, experiment is an elite word for failure. And I think what he means is like, if you have to call it an experiment, it probably mm-hmm. didn't work. Like every good piece yeah. of writing is an experiment. You just publish right. the ones that worked out. Yeah, that's true. So I, I, I am, um, when you talk about recognition, the second kind of recognition, a country recognizes another, that is a, so there is a distinction there between like approval and enjoyment or like you might say, right. I mean, right. I think in this essay, you're very, as I said, you're very diplomatic. You sort of say, well, th- there, you know, this isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. But there is a difference between saying this isn't my cup of tea and saying like I don't recognize this as legitimate because like there are plenty of plenty of countries we recognize that are still not our cup of tea. Sure. So are, do you? Sure, yeah. So subjective subjectivity always plays into these things. I mean, it's sure. it's, an art. <laughs> it's an art. So yeah. So what that, do you, but do where 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 are the lines you would draw in saying this is not legitimate? Whether I like it or not, I this isn't. I don't recognize this. Um, I don't recognize this, uh, meaning, well, what, what are you asking? Like, is there poetry that uh, whose rules I recognize or or rather I understand what they're trying to do and I just don't like it? Well, so so this is, but I think this is what I mean. You say yeah. like, the, you, you say recognize the way a country recognizes another. Sure. There are kinds of poetry that I recognize as being poetry that I just don't enjoy and I don't care for sure. and I'm not interested sure. in. But are there kinds of poetry that you say, or think things that people call poetry that you just say bullshit? <laughs> not, um, no, yeah, that's I not mean, poetry. Certainly, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> you could name schools. Yeah, I mean, look, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, late 20th century um, avant-garde stuff that came out of like, um, I think it was mostly based on the West Coast. Like, I'm just not into that. And like, it's not that I'm not into it. It's just that I'm like, why are these words sequenced in this way? And I, I don't recognize what they're doing. And I don't think it's legitimate either. I mean, I just think it's just, I think the only reason that that book ever found its way across my, uh, you know, into the library where I took it off the shelf briefly was probably because the person in question was well-connected and yeah. you know, perhaps ensconced in some influential university position or something like that. And that's the only reason yeah. why it even, it even found its way to a, a library in suburban Ohio. Like that's, that's so yeah, in that sense, there are forms of poetry that I don't necessarily find legitimate. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I tend and to think go that, by the name of poetry. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the, the things that are, that call themselves poetry. Yeah. I, I tend to think that like, if you, in order for it to be poetry, it has to be the kind of thing that at least somebody might fall in love with and recommend to a friend. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of poetry of the kind you're describing, I, I can't I can imagine plenty of people writing essays about what's important in it, but I can't really imagine anyone picking it up and saying, Oh God, I love this. You have to read this. This really yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And I don't I don't necessarily even take it to that point where I'm like, well, it should have the potential to be subjectively loved by someone because I find, you know, I found, I feel like I see, I see people, you know, having, you know, crying emojis over stuff that I'm just like, I I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why you're having crying emojis. I don't get why you quote, think about that poem every day. 
Um, you know, I, I don't I don't get that. But there's there's literally I mean, I just don't recognize the principles on which the words and letters have been sequenced on the page. Those kinds of poems exist. I feel like they get written less and less now, to be honest with you. I yeah. feel like there's been a, a strong shift away from that kind of work towards perhaps, you know, work that is um I won't even say at the other extreme, I would say that work that is more centered on um, identity um, and grievance and political grievances and things like that. Um, I think I think that that kind of poetry has sort of shifted the 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 focus of contemporary American poetry away from that kind of uh, inscrutable academic language artifacts that used to get produced. I feel a lot more when I was when I was uh, you know starting out. Um, yeah. I think there's been a change. I think there's been a change. No, I'm I'm, I'm definitely with you there. That like like the kind of poetry that I came up uh, resenting. I think what I, th what I <laughs> yeah. kind of what you, you might pejoratively call like nonsense poetry. I right. think that is in 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 decline. I think you're right that there's a there's <clears throat> the, like the poetry. That I think there's still a lot of like. Uh, parataxis and a lot of like ne neglect of like clear yeah. thinking, but but yeah, there's a, a, it's certainly it's almost like a different a different species of confessionalism that there's a right it feels that, it feels that, very that, like sentimental and and self revealing self revealing and and, and uh, you know and and self self dramatizing and, and and things like that, which is natural and that's a more natural mode for poetry in my opinion. Yeah. Then, then particularly, um, I mean, you know, that's just a more natural no mode for poetry. And it was, I mean, even back then when we were probably at, at roughly the same time in American yeah. poetic history, we were both resenting the same stuff in different places. Um, even then I thought to myself, this stuff is time limited. This stuff has the kiss of death on it. You know what I'm saying? Like right. it's, it's, it's on it. I don't, I don't know how long these people are going to rule, but they're on their way out. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, yeah. it's decay. It is decay. And so, I mean, I don't necessarily feel that way about a lot of the stuff that has taken its place simply because it has the advantage of, of being more human, Yeah, you know, being more human. And that's, and, and truth be told, AI was going to destroy that other stuff anyway, you know, <laughs> language, whatever. Yeah. Like it, it was gonna, it was going to, um, it was gonna, it was gonna wipe it out anyway. And yeah. and at this point, AI can generate that stuff infinitely, and 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 it's there's no point. There's no point in yeah. doing. You know? No, I, I think that, I think that that's 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 totally right. Um, and I I do, and I, I agree with you that there's a that the poetry that is in a sentence right now feels more like a natural mode of poetry i and and probably and for that reason is less vulnerable to you know the the winds of change i mean like as less soon as less vulnerable to being supplanted by ai yeah probably well yeah certainly yeah, certainly <laughs> yeah ai is not quite i mean partly and and partly because of something you you do bring up and this was this felt like a very uh a very decorous section of the essay which is the the relationship between the poetry and the poet mm -hmm. and and that seems to be one reason that ai could not supplant the kind of poetry that is most prominent today is that ai doesn't have 
an identity or, or unless unless AI, you know, itself becomes a kind of a, a you know, an identity or, or, or generates a fake identity. I mean, that's also possible. Right. So you yeah. So I, I was curious, you, you mentioned a little bit the the big scandal in 2015 when right. uh, Sherman Alexie's Best American Poetry published a, a poem by Michael Eric Hudson uh, that he initially submitted or he, he published it initially under the name Yifen Chu. Uh, right. And then it was revealed that he was he was not a a female he was not a Chinese woman he was a a, a white man mm-hmm. and people had a lot of strong feelings about this. You've also written in uh, a, a poem. Uh, how do you say that? Where is that from? About a, yeah. a sort of a, a similar approach to this question. I and I also like I, my my suspicion as with most of your claims is that you might feel differently about it on a different day. Uh, right. But, no, I'm, I'm very much like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. So, so what do you, what do you, uh, what is the question though? Like, what am I, what do I feel about that now? Or So you say, for example, his poem changed for the worse in the perception of many readers. Uh, for many readers, the exact same poem or stories when read with the author's moral and ideological vileness in mind would lose their charm. You're talking about a, a kind of a hypothetical where the, the <laughs> poet is somebody who's, who's really explicitly awful. That holds because all art being play must take place on a playground, a charmed circle, the court, the field, the pitch, the page. I I felt like there was a little bit of a leap between those two sentences because there's the, the, the rules or the, you know, you, you compare, you compare the, the breaking of the charm to like a, a, a ball that goes out in tennis, which is like that, of course, like that's actually part of the game in tennis. And I also think of like any number of, uh, uh, even like formal poems that have a moment where the form breaks in a in a poignant sure. way, sure. so that that doesn't necessarily break the spell. Sometimes that that kind of achieves the mm-hmm. magic. Mm-hmm. I'm curious both what you feel about this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah, well, I, diff- and like if there's a different kind of charm circle you're talking about here, right? I think that regarding, I think what we're what the root of this has to do with like the identity of the writer and the sins you know, of the writer and the, the, the validity or invalidity of the work. And that is, you know, that's a very huge topic, but I feel that different people respond to that differently. And if I, I don't know if I qualify that, if I said for some readers, I think I did say for some. You say for some readers, very, that's why it felt very scrupulous that you were saying for some readers. I was scrupulous for a reason. I was scrupulous for a reason when I was making this claim, which is that some people, you know, depending on, first of all, depending on the sin or the, yeah. or the, or the transgression, sure. um, depending on, um, uh, you know, and then depending on the individual reader, some readers and some people have a very, very um, sensitive moral, uh, sort of morally hyperdeveloped nature. Okay. I don't say, I don't know if morally hyperdeveloped is it's just morally sensitive. Okay. Yeah. Where, they cannot bear to think that, uh, you know, they can't, as soon as they know that T.S. Eliot said some racist things in his letters, they go to Eliot and they're like, this guy, I can't, he's, he was a racist. He, he said that stuff in that one, those letters in his private life. And then eh, yeah, old yeah. possum's book of practical cats isn't quite there. Meanwhile, um, I, who also know the same information about T.S. Eliot, um, or, or here's, here's another one, Winston Churchill. Let's bring it to my own ancestry and my <laughs> yeah. own you know, people. When it comes to India, Winston Churchill yeah, was, own, was no background, background, right? Yeah. 
right? Yeah, he, he was he was nasty about Indians. He inflicted a, a, a famine in India in 1943, and and he he didn't want them to be free. And then eventually he colluded with um, the the founder of Pakistan to help you know divide the British Raj into multiple countries that are now nuclear armed rivals. Blah blah blah. Having said that, I still get. I still, I still can read, you know, Churchill's speeches and histories. He wrote a ton of histories. He won a Nobel Prize in literature, and I can listen to those speeches. I can, I can read those books, and I just don't have a problem with the work and his historical role. I recently read like a three-volume biography of Churchill, and I enjoyed it. You know, because I'm a little bit different when it comes to that. You know, I'm, I personally am a little bit different. But I know other Indian uh, people who are, who wouldn't touch anything by Churchill with a ten foot pole, right? Sure. And they hate Kipling too. And I right. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I even gave the Jungle Book to my kids recently to read, a nice illustrated version. Yeah, you and, cite, yeah, you cite him in one of those uh, interviews or essays where you as, as a, a formal model in some cases. But you, I mean, he's he's yeah, so good at certain things. You he's know, really good at certain things. And he he uh, to digress a moment, you know, he he's one of the um, few poets who had a grasp on like soldiers demotic of his era and mm -hmm. so he has those barrack room ballads that are like not very much read today but they're an excellent sort of linguistic snapshot of like the british imperial soldiers brogue transmuted into meter and rhyme it's i find those very i find them very interesting yeah um you know gunga din and and yeah. you know all that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's, it's not read today and it's considered like almost racist today. I'm sure it could oh, be yeah. considered classist because yeah. he's this sort of highly educated person imitating, you know, the brogue of, of these soldiers. But I, I find it interesting. I find it, I find that stuff interesting. So and I'm very rare too. I find it's very rare, you know? Right. Oh yeah. So I, I'm, I, I wonder, cause you said that, that part of this is a distinction of personality or, or, or sort of moral sensibility, I wonder though, because you're a student of the classics and you're also a student of history. Uh -huh. I, I, so I had a conversation the other night with a British poet who said that his perception was that American poets, especially in the kind of the creative writing end of things, mm -hmm. have a very shallow well that they're mostly drawing from the, the deepest the well tends to go is, is Whitman and Dickinson. And I, and I, my experience, like you're often lucky if it goes that deep. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I wonder how much of this question of a a relationship between the or a an inflexible relationship mm -hmm. between the poet's work and reputation is is not just a question of personality, but a question of uh, historical Amnesia. knowledge or familiarity. I mean, it, it seems hard. Like, you, it would be hard to read the classics if you if you excluded anybody who had who had you know who, really reason. objectionable you yeah. know beliefs or practices right um no i i i i know what you're what where you're coming from and look you know byron was 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 a pedophile he was a, <laughs> he was a pedophile sex tourist he went to Turkey, yeah. he purchased young underage boys uh and 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 you know his i i read his biography and i was like wow you know this guy was out of control and, you know, I still like Don Juan and, and, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That, and I don't know if that's just me as a, as a person having a tendency to divide work and, and, and hu human, you know, work, the work and the man, 
um, maybe uh, I know that I'm a sinner in the eyes of God. And so I don't sure. want, I don't want anybody, you know, taking my own personal failings and then blacklisting my, my work over that. But uh, again, I, I tend to be more, I tend to be just kind of, I don't know if, you know, forgiving about, I don't know if I'm forgiving quote unquote, but I am forgiving of the work, not necessarily. Right. I, and, and you, and I can't remember if it's in this essay or in a different one, you make the, you make like the, the converse point about Byron, that some of his work was more appealing at the time because his personal reputation and presence was so, was the so, myth, you know, the myth of the myth. I mean, the myth right. of the myth. And then eventually, you know, as he, even within his own lifetime, he became uh, discredited and in disgrace among the uh, sort of the, the elite society in, in Britain. And that's why he never returned to Britain after he went to Italy and then Greece. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to go back to what you, you, you said earlier about, uh, you know, the well being shallow, I think that the MFA culture has led writers to focus on their contemporaries a lot and sort of use their contemporaries, their immediate contemporaries as models and as the people that they're going to, you know, take in as influences. And that is, you know, there's always that happens in every generation, but usually there's the simultaneous element of writing your way out from under the, the old greats as it were. And so that's why, you know, Keats is a great example. He's influenced by the generation that was still alive at the time, Wordsworth, Coleridge, the quote-unquote romantic movement. And yet when you go into his complete works, you'll see a Shakespearean play, you'll see Spenserian stanzas, you'll see Miltonic verse where he's trying to write a sort of Greek version of paradise, a sort of, you know, Greek, you know, Greek mythological version of paradise lost in a very Miltonic language, very Spenserian language, very Shakespearean language. And that process of writing your way out from under the masters of the old, the old masters occurs simultaneously with your engagement with the contemporary world. And I think that the contemporary culture of American poetry has favored and sort of skewed that balance towards one side of things. And yeah. part of that may have to do with the fact that, you know, as we were talking about, formal poetry is uncool, right? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, the poetry of the remote past, almost all of which <laughs> right, yeah, written in yeah. form yeah. of some form or, or some kind or another, is automatically slotted into a sort of mental column that says, this is of no use to me as a creator. Right. And that is that is the kiss of death because I feel that you don't read anything as closely or as from a technical standpoint as closely and as um, with as deep an engagement as you do when you're trying to learn from it and apply it to your own praxis. And no, I, yeah. and that's just that's just human nature, you know. It's kind of like at that point you're like, you know, oh, you know, how did this how did this writer do this? How can I how can I learn from this? How can I apply this to my own work? Um, that's that's a different kind of reading, but it's very deep. For, from a technical standpoint, it's very deep, and I think that that uh, may not happen as much anymore, from what I can see. And this is this is why I like to modify Jonathan Farmer's heuristic for for Twitter. To returning to your your comment about the crying emojis, my, like my standard is 
the, I believe the crying emojis represent real emotion if you're applying them to a dead person's poem. Like, mm. it's not that you you couldn't have that response to the poem of a contemporary, but if you're tagging a contemporary and adding that, I, like, well, I don't. I see what you're I, saying. I yeah, like, like yeah. that's why I, I don't, um, I still find like a, the, the maybe, it may be sentimental, but I feel like the the emotional criterion for, for like poetic success is still meaningful because I just think most of those emojis are lying. Mm -hmm. then, like it's it, again it's a it's a more natural approach to, to poetry than but it's it's part of the general rhetorical inflation of social media yeah oh, you yeah. know what i'm saying like basically everything on social media is fascism right and same way <laughs> right. same way everything on yeah. social every everyone you don't like is hitler and everyone everything you don't every yeah, I, you know yeah. you don't like is fascism in the same way every poem is crying emoji crying emoji fire, right. emoji, fire emoji and so um yeah i mean in the sense that you think that they're they're lying. I mean, I don't. I don't even know if we need to attribute mendacity to it. I think we can just attribute <laughs> hyperbole to it. You know? Sure. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I. I. I don't. Yeah. I, I think it's. Um, Although, if you are tagging a contemporary, you want them to see it. You want them to right. like you. you. Next time you post something, you want them to like you know this, and then it's, it's the circle yeah. continues. You know, the wheel of, of dharma continues to spin, and yeah. so it's kind of like uh, you know, I. I it is hard to tease that out. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. So, so you're relatively active on Twitter. What do you? What's your? What are your feelings about it? As a, as a. Media? Oh, I love it. By the it. way, by I the way, your Twitter avatar is so intimidating. Look, like you look like Anton Lavey. Like it's such a severe <laughs> photo of you. You're much. You're you're much like nicer. You know, see, you seem much nicer. With, you know, I'm, in I'm a video. nicer guy. Yeah, probably before you. Uh, you got. <laughs> Before you started this, you were probably like, "Oh shoot, I better." Uh, yeah, I was. I was kind of bracing. Yeah, <laughs> like a, a bouncer. Yeah. No, you know what? I I don't. I, you know, it's it's true. But truth be told, uh, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a really nice person. In really <laughs> okay, but uh, no, Twitter. I love Twitter. I think it's amazing. I think uh, first of all, it's it's uh, it's taught me so much. It's it's you know, it's uh, linked me up with some really. Uh, amazing friends, not even in the literary sphere, like, yeah. uh, cause I, I do a lot of like religious stuff and historical stuff and blah, 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 blah and fiction and whatever. But like, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, connected with some really amazing people over Twitter. Um, you get, you get, and truth be told, I mean, you can find truth on Twitter. You have to sort through a lot of stuff. But there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people are trying to fool people and trying to lie to people. Sure. But there's, there are usually anonymous accounts are the ones that you have to, you have to find like certain really good anonymous accounts that like are, are spot on about certain okay. things. And they get proven right later, much later. Do you have and any, do you have any recommendations? No, no. I guess that technically you could no 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 I, I, it, 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 don't worry about it. So so I, I love that I love I love it's 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 shown me you know and also I love the accounts that just share really interesting archaeological uh, images and art images and sculptures and temples and stuff like that. I love you know it's actually. I would not have known to submit this to LARB if I hadn't connected with Boris over Twitter. Okay. So it's a direct, you know, literally right, right, right. I that essay got published because of just, you know, some interactions on Twitter where I was right. kind of like, you know, LARB might actually be a nice might be interested in hosting this thing that I've been sitting on, it's been sitting on my hard drive for like 3 years and I never mm -hmm. sent it anywhere. 
but maybe I should send it somewhere. Maybe I should send it there. And that, so Twitter has been, Twitter's great. I mean, people give it a bad rap, but I think it's because they curate their feeds wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you curate your feeds to have a, you know, a ton of like political hysteria pumped directly into your vein. You're going to be very unhappy as a result of being on Twitter. But if you fill your, your feed with, you know, insightful people, poems, beautiful images of, you know, temples and nature and, and, and archeological sites and historical artifacts. Um, it's great. It's great. I just wrote this. I wrote, I just wrote one of the best essays probably I've ever written, at least from my perspective. It's about, um, Marcus Aurelius and the, and the Bhagavad Gita and, and the harmonics between these two very stoic approaches to war. And, uh, it was weirdly uncannily, uh, appropriate, you know, given the unfortunate things that are um, that are happening right now, I'd finish it right before then. But I wouldn't have written that essay if Twitter hadn't, because I had those ideas in my mind for like five or six years. I was like, you know, these two books are very similar and I need to explore that. But then very randomly, Twitter just popped some Marcus Aurelius artifact into my feed. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna write this essay. I've been, I've been sitting on these ideas, just they've been rattling around my head for years. I'm going to write this essay. And so Twitter, my feed really literally just kind of, kind of goaded me into writing something that I'd put off for years. And, mm-hmm. and it turned out, I, I really like it. Who knows if we get published anywhere. A lot of times when you really like something and when something is just very much like, you know, right there, um, you know, it, it can often leave the rest of the world cold because it's too democratic. Sure. So, um, so who knows, maybe I'll, you know, I'll send you a link if it ever comes out, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, that that's, that's Twitter. That's Twitter in a nutshell. I love that. And I have just two, I guess, quick questions for you. One is just sort of a, a, I was delighted by a comparison you made that I had not quite seen before uh, in, and this was in your piece in the new criterion on formal restlessness a while back, which feels a little bit like a, a sister to to the game essay. There's there's something similar happening there, uh, but you you compare the the idea that poetry in the in the life of a poet goes through an evolution from mm-hmm. you know usually it's from formal. Po- you even talk about like the formal shackles uh mm-hmm. being being cast off which i li- it's like literally that phrase appeared in the simon armitage book i'm reading right now mm-hmm. you, you you liken that that uh misconception that that poetry right. in the life of a particular poet evolves into something higher uh mm-hmm. like free verse to the old recapitulation theory uh mm-hmm. that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny which is a really pleasing idea that just is if i re- recall just turns out not to be the case scientifically i wrote that so long ago i'm gonna answer this <laughs> i can remember what i, I can re- here i can read the little the little thing you wrote sure. uh you see, a human gestation involves a steady embryonic shape shift in the womb. The body tests out neck gills and seals them, grows a tail and resorbs it, webs the fingers and frees them. A whole evolutionary past is implied in it. Fish, salamander, duck, enough metamorphoses to fill a book and of it. And there was an old theory that that this was exactly what was happening. And I think it turns out not ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny was the ta- the, oh, kind of the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the slogan. And I think that scientifically isn't it sort of seems to be true but it's not quite true and then you say we can make this mistake when it comes to form we can think of a poet writing in many different forms as a preliminary fitfulness that precedes a settled adult form congratulations you found your voice hit your stride become who you are and you will never bother testing out a curdle sonnet or a run of spring sprung rhythm ever again Mm, yeah 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 now i remember that (laughs) yeah 
Because I was like, did I use the word ontogeny? Of you didn't use that phrase, but that's exactly, I just recognized I was that. Like, from, yeah. I, that, that threw me off for a moment because I thought that was quoting what I was saying. And I was like, I don't remember. No, no, no. Yeah. 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 Um, so, no, I mean, that that's that's something that I've I've noticed. Um, and I think that I gave I think I gave a, a, some examples from 20th century among 20th century. Oh, yeah. 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 In the, next, out, in the next paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who started out you know, writing in form, and then they quote unquote graduated to their, to their truly modern form, which was to not scan and not rhyme. Right. Um, maybe, you know, I, I think that I, I probably am, 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 you know, a, against that idea or that, that narrative, probably because I write all of those types of poems in the same book or at the right. same time, you know? And so I don't regard Oh, I wrote this one in free verse, and that's more modern than something that I wrote in 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 meter and rhyme, or meter only, or or you know irregular meter but rhyme. And you know, I just I just I'm all over the place, and so I've never and I'm formally restless as a poet, as yeah. you may know. And so so I don't I don't see I don't see it as as an evolutionary thing. Now, maybe in the 20th century, mid 20th century, when Adrian Rich and Ashbery and Ted Hughes and all these people were in W.S. Merwin when they were all flipping over to, uh, you know, abandoning formal verse, going to free verse and then never looking back. Maybe to them, it did seem like there was an, uh, a chronological or evolutionary element to it where they were, quote unquote, becoming modern. Yeah. And and that is because free verse was newer then. At this point, free verse is the dominant convention of a contemporary American poetry. And they call formal verse conventional verse, but what they're actually referring to is a bygone convention that is that has not been the case for uh, at least half a century, perhaps more. And it's almost as though, hey, here's a, here's a it's conventional verse because it, it adheres to the conventions of European or British civilization from 100 years ago. It, it's, it's not an accurate use of the term convention relative to our society and our time. Conventional verse in the 21st century in America and in Britain is free verse. And actually yeah. in much, much across, in, in fact, much of the rest of the world. And I think what one of the largest scale developments that is un, under discussed, in my opinion, is the fact that the Anglo-American Elliot Pound, uh, originally Tristan Laforgue, or you know some other uh, uh, you know yeah, yeah. predecessors within French verse, at the turn of the 20th century, um, it was a niche thing within certain European or Anglophone cultures, right? And then because of the nature of the colonial nature of the English language yeah. and the colonial prestige of European civilization at that time, it 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 swept traditional verse forms in numerous civilizations, just swept them away mm -hmm. to the point where I, I've come across Indian literary journals, not just English language Indian literary journals, Indian literary journals in vernacular languages of India, yeah. Gujarati, Hindi, they too write in free verse, which has no actual organic development within the history of Indian languages, all right, or Indian right. formal traditions, shloka meter, trishtub meter, you know, the, 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 the dohas of tulsidas has no relationship to any of that. 
All right. I know I said a bunch of stuff that you probably haven't heard of, but those are those are various formal elements or formal techniques yeah. within those traditions. The puzzle as well. Very, the, very. The, they are they, they are receiving. That's a European convention. It is a European yeah. colonial uh, imposition or or something that is spread. Cultural, you know, cultural imperialism can occur. Cultural hegemony can take over. You know, in the absence of political subjugation and. Right. This is the nature of gentrification almost. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we can call it what we want, but I find it really fascinating that, yeah. you know, 100 years ago, this was a niche thing primarily in Anglo American poetry. And now it has swept. In fact, I was at a poetry festival, you know, 10 years ago, and they had this very hallowed Chinese poet from China who had come over. And, uh, you know, he was, he was, a free verse writer. And he was telling me how like, oh yeah, there are some poets who hold fast traditional Chinese forms, but we're, we're at the, we're at the avant-garde, you know, where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, this is the future. And I'm like, I guess your future is, is Anglo-American, I guess, you know what I'm saying? Like from a literary standpoint. Yeah. 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 From a formal or technical standpoint of your poetry. Um, And so I, I just, I, I cannot think of a comparable situation where, something like this has swept the poetic cultures of the world so effectively within the course of less than a century. I, I mean, I, I just can't because, and because we weren't as connected, you know what I'm saying? We weren't. Yeah. As so, but I mean, that, I mean, that, that has happened. Like the, they're so in some ways it, it's similar to the way rap has now become global that you get rap from everywhere. But I do think those are, I think there's, I think there's, I, my suspicion is that there's a kind of a key difference between those two. Here's the hard question for a formal poet though. Why, why is free verse, why did it take off? Why is it such a wildfire? Why does it sweep formal verse away in every culture? What is it? What, yeah, what, what, yeah. what is it about it uh, that, that, uh, that, that does Touches that? Hold so, like that? Yeah, so, so uh, there's, I, I don't know if there's a right answer. Yeah. And so maybe you and I should just spitball some ideas. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, and I have not put too much thought into this. If if I if I had to, because you know I've mentioned the phenomenon, but really, um, I I I hesitate too much to go into the why because it may be you know it can seem kind of like you know you know one idea would be that <laughs> it's one one idea would be that it it lowers the bar for entry. Yep. And. The other idea would be that it conceals ineptitude, um, which yep. is that, you know, if you if you mess up, it's it's so much it's so much easier to look at a formal poem and be like, yeah, that one didn't didn't land compared to a scattershot free verse poem. It's just a fact. OK, right. it's just you, can, fact. you can see what they're going for. You can see what they're going for. And as soon as you you take it away, you take away. Hey, this is what I'm going for. Who can say that you're a failure? Who can say that you failed? You know what I'm saying? Like, so it lowers the bar of entry. It decreases the um, it decreases the 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 perception of failure. And and what's there not to love? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I think those those are my two ideas. But I I mean yeah. those that I've had. I, I kind of I mean I kind of suspect that's right. And I would I wonder. I mean, there's probably not really a good way to. I mean, well. Oh, oh and I, I forgot. Here's the other thing. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. The third thing. The third thing whether it's a religion, whether it's any cultural form, victory and, and material, trend, uh, material uh, dominance 
adds to the prestige of cultural forms. Okay. So okay. basically, basically, if America were an extremely poor country with, you know, no infrastructure to speak of and absolutely uh, no uh, prestige geopolitically in the 20th century, American cultural forms, including rap, would not have conquered the world. Right. Okay. And so it is something that is uh, described as early as the 11th, I think the 12th or 11th century, Ibn Khaldun in the Muqaddimah, which is this Arabic uh, work, you know, this is at the height of, you know, basically Islamic civilization after the Arab conquests everywhere. And he, he wrote this sort of amazing panoptic view of the history and culture and so sociology of his time. And he talked about, you know, why is our, you know, why does everyone imitate the Arabs is what was one of his questions that he asked. And he says, it's because we're victorious. And, it, and, and if we were losers, they wouldn't do this. We wouldn't have the prestige. Conquered peoples or subordinate peoples imitate the cultural forms of those who dominate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and this is, it's such a simple insight. And, and yet it's very hard to find it. And I've looked for it. But it's very hard to find it in earlier works or works elsewhere. Right. And, you know, the Arabs at that time were kind of like the Americans of, of their era, yeah. right? Massive transnational empires. Um, you know, they were, they, were, they were at the top. They were in, in you know, cultural manifestations. They were, um, you know, they were, they were supreme at that time. And he just had this very simple insight. And it's, I think that's true, to be honest with you. Everything that I've seen bears that out when it comes to the American century. Yeah. And so what you see, I mean, it's not it's not a given. It's not a given. And, you know, depending on how the 21st century works, Chinese cultural forms may gain in in attractiveness, you know, right. 100 years from now. And and this is just how this is just how human beings work. This is just how yeah. human the human psyche, the human psyche is 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 hardwired towards imitative or mimetic behavior of you know, sort of the alpha, right? Right. And and the alpha civilization. And and that was us. And that was us. And that's why English is the language that it is. That's why free verse is global. That's why rap is global. That's why Hollywood movies are, you know, have were global. Uh and to this day they're global as well. I mean, right. China, I mean they they make their movies now not just for the United States audience, but also for the Chinese audience yeah. and the European audience. Everyone, it's a global phenomenon. And uh and and that's what we're seeing. Who knows if we'll continue to see it for this coming century. If I had a better understanding of history, I would want to dig more into this question. Because I think we everything you're saying makes sense. And I do suspect that because of those first two reasons the the lowered bar to entry and the um the increased difficulty of identifying failure i i do suspect that whereas rap has the 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 popularity of rap has increased the number of rappers but also proportionally the number of listeners whereas i think that the the popularity of free verse poetry has probably more disproportionately increased the number of poets than the number of readers mm. of poetry. I, like, but I mean, aren't, are, isn't there a strong overlap between those two populations? The well, they're, they're, the right, there are, but I think I think like the, by when you increase the number of poets, you increase the number of poetry readers 
at a like one to one ratio, sure, <laughs> right? Sure. But I think with with like rap, when when like a when well, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true because look, there are poets who have like you know like Rupi Kaur is a perfect example. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's there. All sorts of people read her poetry that don't write poetry. Well, the, well, and that's why I give her more credit than I give the the uh, the free the the academic free verse poet with a lot of good theory behind his work because people actually like the Ruby Cor. Now, part of what they're liking is not just the words; they're liking the presentation, they're liking the profile, they're liking the photo. You know, there's a lot that goes along with it. It's a package. Same for spoken word poetry. Same for rap. It's not. It's not j just the words. It's a. It's a whole presentation right, that people like. Right. But I think like, and and there's like the the historical question that I I don't know enough to have any kind of like smart assessment of is that there are there are m like cultural modes that become popular because they they originate from a dominant culture. And then there are cultural modes. I think there are cultural modes that become popular in the other direction. I think like the Irish cultural influence on the English, the uh, Black American cultural influence on you know American culture, which is really outsized. The Greek influence on the Romans, sure. where where it's. I think like I wonder if those kind that influence. Maybe you call that appropriation or whatever you want to call it. Like I wonder if that's more durable because it seems grounded in someone's actual genuine enjoyment rather than in a striving after status. Yeah, I mean I would I would think so and historically that what you're saying is absolutely true which is that well no actually okay. not necessarily true. And the reason I would say this is because um and, and again there's more than one moving part here. So sure, sure, sure. for example, religious conversions of conquered peoples they can throw off the political domination and yet retain the religion. Right. But yeah. the religion was originally taken as a sort of mimetic behavior of the dominant uh, imperial force. And so, you know, a lot of moving parts there. Um, the, you know, oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you were talking about rap and you were talking about things like that and 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 versus poetry, you know, often raising it in a one to one ratio. Historically, in my opinion. Or for, from what I can gather. Poetry has been sort of raised to a state, uh, a sort of level of of a mass art or uh, a, an art with a large audience of non-specialists when it has been married to music or drama mm -hmm. and spectacle. And that's why the Greek tragedians, whom we today read as texts, actually packed amphitheaters right. because they had actors and they had music. Okay, and they had even some, you know, dance and stuff like that, and and, and, and less competition. Perform. But yeah, <laughs> and, and, and in performance, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Same thing with Shakespeare. You know, today we right. read Shakespeare. A lot of us read Shakespeare plays, you know, as poems almost, as dramatic right. poems. Yeah, we yeah, call yeah, them yeah. dramatic poems sometimes, but in fact, it's a blueprint. They, yeah, they, they, they had actors, they had costumes, they had dances. They used to dance and sing songs in between acts, and and at the end of the play, everyone got up and danced apparently. Um, uh, and they don't, I mean, they don't do that in modern uh, productions, but in Elizabethan times, in Elizabethan sure. production, they'd, you know, everybody would be dead at the end of the tragedy. And then they'd get up and they'd dance a jig. Um, right. and, yeah, you know, yeah. That was just, that was just the conventions, right? Because it was all together. And um, similarly, you were, I think on your last podcast, you're talking about Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, right? You were talking right. about how it was the entire package, right? And so yeah. similarly, that's another, that's another thing. There's a performer, 
there's a delivery and there's a spectacle associated with that poem that leads to, that's a delivery mechanism for that particular language artifact. And um, even Homer, you know, with the rhapsodes, rhapsodes, you know, all those, those sort of people who go around and, and perform Homer. Yeah, yeah. They had a, they had a, they had an instrument. Homer even refers to the lyre of the bard, right? The, 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 the plucked instrument. Yeah. And so, um, so, so basically I feel like the kind of poetry that is on the page alone or is very complex often historically has been a niche production with a very small audience, yeah. um, often of practitioners, usually in the court of a duke or a king. Um, the sonnet originated at the court of a of a of a of a Sicilian a, a king, I believe, I, yeah. I recall. And, it, and that's how it made the leap to England too. Was in right. as court, and, and as a, yeah, court courtly form, right? And yeah. so and so, I think when we speak of academia, 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 Umberto Eco compares it to monasteries, but it could also be compared to to a court and. That's why, you know, the basically an academic program in in poetry, it doesn't fund itself. It is funded by the upwardly striving students who are out to get jobs, who pay grotesque amounts of tuition money yeah. into the system that most of that money goes towards athletics. And there's a little bit amount that's left over that's handed out as a sop to creative people. Right. Yeah. And and it is analogous to how tax revenues would come into a court, the bulk of it would be sent towards spectacle and military. And there would be a tiny amount that would, they would flip, you know, flick a gold doubloon over to the poet and say, recite for me, you know? And, and that's the equivalent. That's financially, that's the equivalent of what goes on at a university. And so, yeah. so it is not surprising that, uh, you know, academic poetry should have elements to it that are arcane or or somewhat esoteric type elements because it is fundamentally a courtly art. It's the equivalent of courtly art. It is subsidized. It is not it does not subsidize itself for the most part. Um, and the forms that do subsidize themselves, like you mentioned, you know, Rupi Kaur, yeah. those forms are married to something else. In her case, imagery and persona and presentation. In uh, other cases, it'll be music um, or other, you know, cult of personality, what you name it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if anything, I, I thought you were too generous in some of your, in the, the game essay, you you talk about the, you link the the prominence of a poet to talent. And I just wanted to say, I wanted to say like, well, the, we're really talking about patronage. We're really talking about like a... <laughs> It, uh, uh, Austin has a line about li about licensure being like the the, mm -hmm. the chief determining factor in, in uh, poetic success. So um, I wanted to ask you a purely self-serving question because we have a few of your books here, mm -hmm. but there's a poem of yours I heard you read on the radio years ago, mm -hmm. and I can't, I've, I've looked for it online. I, I cannot for the life of me find it. It's a short poem. I want to say it, it refers to the Iliad or at least to some like Greek military scene mm. and there's a and the, the image is of a of a, a severe burning uh try, it's like maybe sonnet length and I, I figured I I've been looking for it forever and I figured I'd at least ask you if that I, I read it on the radio I I I, I mm. could I could well I know I heard it I didn't read it uh, and um, I, I think it was the radio because I didn't listen to podcasts at the time, I don't think. Oh, uh, I know what it is. Is oh. it the one about um, the signal fires? The signal fires? I know it, it had a fire in it. It had a burning in it. 
so, was, so I think was that invocation was an invocation. That may well be. What book is that in? Because I that's, in, that's the last poem in Dokken. Oh, I don't have that one. I don't have that one. Okay, all right. That one? Or no? Sure. Yeah. No, I'd love. Yeah. No. The, please. So yeah, this one was actually written from my experience as a medical student in the child psychiatry um, unit, where there are these kids who would be sort of, you know, who had been uh, often abused and like they would have these, um, you know, their, I, I noticed that their arms often were, were messed up in different ways. Yeah. And so this is, this kind of came from that. It's called invocation. The arms I sing, forget the man. There is no other epic. Sing the arms of kids, the ones with pustules, all along their veins, like runway track lights burning for a plane that blew up hours ago with no survivors. The ones with runes no parent can decipher. One message knifed and scarred and knifed again in a mystic tongue forgotten who knows when. The arms imprinted with a shadow grip as if the dad who grabbed and crushed had dipped his hand in black paint first, the arms with tight arcs of perforation, human bites that get infected faster than a dog's, the toddler's arms with both hands scalded raw, all glisteny and hog pink, swollen taut, the tantrum over, the lesson taught, two signal fires, that call across a plain, the city is sacked in all the children slain. Yeah. Was that the one? Yeah, 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 yeah. That la the ending is 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 what I particularly remembered. But yeah, that yeah, no, that's it. And that the image, I think, and maybe I, because it's obviously it's the Aeneid, but I think what took me to the Iliad was that image of the the parent's handprint and I thought of Thetis holding Achilles mm -hmm. like the, oh, bear, the, the, the negative impression of the hand. Yeah. 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 No, that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for doing this. Any, uh, any, any last, um, uh, uh bones to pick or, or grenades oh, to throw no. or, um, no, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, I've been listening to your archives and it's just, <laughs> podcast. so yeah. Good. Yeah. Fun. No, no. I, uh, uh, thank, thank you so much. And, um, yeah, I will, We'll see if uh, if you if you, we, we, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep my eye out and uh, get you back on for some some more inflammatory conversations sometimes. So. Let's let's do it. I'm always all about saying inflammatory things that'll get us both canceled. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, good good company for it then. That was my conversation with Amit Majmadar. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Amit Majmadar, all one word. And I will put links in the show notes to all of his stuff, or at least as much as I can find, because again, he is uh, just insanely prolific. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com and on Twitter at sleerickets. Thank you all so much for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.